Hello and welcome to No Character Limit. My name is Robert Thurk, and today you're going to hear episode four of my book, Ultima Thule, Unraveling the Unknown. In this episode, we're going to wrap up chapter two, and we're going to wrap up our discussion on Thales of Miletus and really get into the academic discussion and argument surrounding whether Thales did or did not truly predict this eclipse. One of the biggest sources I use in this episode comes from the book The Exact Sciences of Antiquity by Otto Neugebauer, who is very well-known and well-respected, and he's pretty well-respected in academic circles. However, I do push back a little bit on some of his conclusions in my own way of adding a little bit of spice to this debate. I found researching this whole topic really interesting, and I didn't expect for it to have as much nuance as it did, but I'm glad I was able to find all of the information that I did and share it in this way, because while all of this information I share is out there, I can't think of another place where it's all in one location. So hopefully you appreciate all of this information as well. I think one other aspect that comes out of this episode, as well as the previous two episodes, is how quickly all of the ancient kingdoms of antiquity collapsed, and what that did as far as diaspora of information that usually isn't cited or talked about as much as I would have expected it to. Most of this conversation is usually talked about only after Alexander the Great went conquering through, but Alexander the Great was actually pretty late in the game when you go back and pay attention to how the Assyrians fell and the Babylonians fell and how the Lydians fell and how the Persians fell. And with many of these empires having lasted hundreds or over a thousand years, it's really interesting to consider what was going on at that time with whatever precious information accumulated over the course of centuries together, and how quickly it all could have been lost. So I hope you enjoy the last episode of Chapter 2, where I really dive in and try and determine whether Thales did or did not actually predict the eclipse of May 28th, 585 BCE. In this episode, I go back and actually find multiple other eclipses and where they passed over at different times to really try and get a good understanding of what people in Greece and Anatolia and the Middle East would have been able to see at the time. 
please remember that if you are enjoying this podcast, that you can always give a donation by clicking down in the description below. And if you don't feel like waiting for the next episode or would like to see all of the pictures I've included along with the text that you're hearing, you will get a free PDF copy of this book or any of the others I've shared with you on this podcast by donating. If you'd like to follow for further updates, I will do that on no character limit at mastodon.world. And you can always email me at no character limit at protonmail.com. So with that, please enjoy episode four of Ultima Thule, Unraveling the Unknown. Chapter 2, Part 4, The Saros Cycle and Substitute Kings. The ace in the hole for those who want to believe that Thales accurately predicted his namesake eclipse is something called the Saros Cycle that came from the nearby Babylonian Empire southeast of Lydia and south of Persia. Babylonia also fell to Cyrus the Great and the Persians soon after Thales' death for allying themselves with the Lydians, snuffing out another of the empires of antiquity. In the destruction of this ancient dynasty, much was lost of a people who had existed for nearly 1,500 years, with origins dating as far back as 1894 BCE. What access Thales might have had to astronomical data before the Persian conquest and destruction of Babylonia will not fully be known and it may be that he had access to excellent sources that did not survive the Persian sacking of Babylon. But as for the astronomical data that we know did survive, at least in relation to eclipses, the Saros cycle is the strongest case for proponents of the Thales prediction theory. The Saros cycle was used by the Mesopotamians for centuries before and after the fall of Babylon. The Saros cycle is one of those rhythms of the universe that can only be picked up by those who keep meticulous data and have long attention spans. About every 18 years, 11 days, and 8 hours from a previous eclipse, the next eclipse occurs in a Saros cycle. This does not mean that there were no eclipses that took place in between that 18-year cycle. It just means that they are part of a different Saros cycle that follows its own 18-year schedule. For example, in the 21st century, there are 40 separate solar Saros cycles occurring simultaneously, which is why, on average, there are about two solar eclipses per year. 
it takes 54 years to complete a full Saros cycle called an exelegmos, which is Greek for turning of the wheel. Today, there are modern eclipse chasers who dedicate their lives to participating in Saros cycle eclipses and viewing particular ones as a badge of honor. To have witnessed a full exelegmos of a Saros cycle demonstrates an unwavering dedication to the cause. There is clear evidence that the ancient Mesopotamians understood the Saros cycle to some extent, although the names of who these prehistoric astronomers were have been lost to time. But their tablets still exist, proving that they had an astronomical understanding that outpaced the rest of the ancient world. Not only did the Babylonians understand the Saros cycle, but so did their Mesopotamian twin, Assyria, before they were overthrown by Syaxares of Media. The fall of these ancient empires, Assyria, Lydia, Media, and Babylonia, all took place during or shortly after Thales' life. He lived through a time of disruption nearly unprecedented to the ancient world. Astronomer Dmitry Panchenko notes that this upheaval, which included other issues such as feuding between Babylonia and Egypt, likely caused diaspora of both people and knowledge across kingdoms, and that astronomical information may have landed in the hands of Thales by these means. The Mesopotamian Saros cycle from Assyria or Babylonia could easily have been one of these pieces of information collected by Thales. We know that ancient Mesopotamians used the Saros cycle to predict solar eclipses well before Thales because of a well-understood practice by Mesopotamians called the Substitute King. According to the Met Museum, quote, One of the most serious omens was a solar eclipse which predicted grave danger for the ruler of the area of the world in which it appeared. Ancient Mesopotamian astronomers had developed the knowledge to accurately predict eclipses with a high degree of precision. Once an eclipse was predicted and the area in which it would appear had been identified, the court and the priests took action. If the eclipse took place over Assyria, for instance, the Assyrian king would be in danger, and for the king to be in danger put the entire power structure of the kingdom at risk. So a substitute would be put in his place, literally a substitute king, or Sharpuki in Akkadian, the language of the Assyrian court and its official documents. End quote. The reason the substitute king was needed is because the Mesopotamians of Assyria and Babylon had a different viewpoint on fate than that of the ancient Greeks. The Greeks believed that once something had been prophesied that it was a foregone conclusion that it would happen and that it could not be escaped. 
There is no better example of this in Greek mythology than that of the story of King Acretius, who the oracle warns that his death will come at the hands of his daughter's son. To avoid this fate, he imprisons her, but she ends up getting impregnated through a golden shower of Zeus anyway. When King Acretius finds out about this, not wanting to be directly responsible for killing his daughter or her baby, he puts them both in a chest and throws it into the sea. They would later be found by a fisherman, and the baby would grow up to become the famous Greek hero Perseus, who went on to kill Medusa, found Mycenae, and be the greatest Greek hero until Heracles. One day, an old king Acretius attended funeral games where, unbeknownst to him, his grandson Perseus would be throwing discus. The discus accidentally strikes Acrisius in the head, and he dies, thereby fulfilling the prophecy decades after it was made. The Mesopotamians didn't subscribe to such a rigid line of fate. Prophecies and omens were merely warnings of a possibility that something bad could happen, not a guarantee. The substitute king was a method to avoid the tragic fate associated with omens brought on by eclipses. The substitute king could have been any man, a commoner, or even a prisoner. This nobody would suddenly be ascended to the highest position in the kingdom by the court. While they weren't allowed to govern over the kingdom, they were allowed to sit in the king's throne, sleep in his bed, eat his food, wear his clothes, have a substitute queen, or even, sometimes, throw parties. Meanwhile, the actual king would lay low, while the eclipse passed with the belief that whatever curse it was supposed to bestow upon the king would end up instead being put on the substitute king. In a way, they created a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy, because once the dangers associated with the eclipse had passed, they would kill the substitute king along with his substitute queen in an elaborate sacrifice, ensuring the curse died with him. Things didn't always turn out badly for the substitute king, though. In one instance, in 1861 BCE, which really goes to show how long this practice had been going on for, the real king died, quote, after having sipped a broth that was too hot, end quote, while the substitute king, a gardener by trade, was on the throne. And so the substitute king was allowed to continue to rule for the next 24 years. The ritual of the substitute king was not used exclusively for eclipses, though, but it does seem that they were primarily implemented for this. Other celestial omens were associated with the substitute king ritual as well, such as planets not following expected paths and causing a concerned council to temporarily select a substitute king just in case. 
There is one more noteworthy possible use of a substitute king, although the details of exactly what occurred remain hazy. It occurred in the last year of Alexander the Great's life in 323 BCE, when he was ruling his new Greek empire from Babylon, freshly taken from the Persians, the last dynasty of antiquity to perish. Alexander's reign was over 200 years after Thales, and it would still be another couple of centuries before Greeks were able to begin predicting solar eclipses through Hipparchus's methods. Eight years previously, Alexander the Great had his first glimpse of the power of Babylonian astronomy. In 331 BCE, a lunar eclipse preceding the Battle of Gogamela was interpreted to mean that Alexander's opponent, Darius III of Persia, was destined to lose his throne. This was such a widely understood omen that Darius knew that the eclipse depicted his downfall according to Mesopotamian astronomy. In response, Darius allegedly increased the number of sacrifices to the gods before the battle against the Greeks took place. This astronomical interpretation simultaneously emboldened the Greeks and weakened the Persian armies, with some allegedly defecting before the battle even began, and ultimately giving Alexander the Great the win at Gogamela. The Battle of Gogamela is considered the most important battle in helping Alexander win the war against the Persians. And so there, again, without intention, the churning of the cosmos changes the fate of empires because people interpret a meaning where none was intended. But as the cosmos giveth, they taketh away. And in 323 BCE, Alexander was warned again by the Babylonian astronomers of a possible incoming eclipse, and that he should leave Babylon, the city where he ruled from. It's also noted that this was the end of the eight years of luck bestowed upon him by the heavens at the Battle of Gogamela. The eclipses that may have been predicted in that year were in April and May, although neither seemed to ultimately end up occurring over Babylon. But Alexander did not heed their advice and remained in the city and continued to rule as king. As the story goes, when Alexander was gone one day, it is claimed that a prisoner who was released, came and sat upon Alexander's throne and wore his crown. Upon hearing this, Alexander was unnerved as someone else seated on your throne was a well-known bad omen for the Greeks. His Babylonian council then advised Alexander to kill the person who sat on his throne. While this was not explicitly relayed as a substitute king ritual from historic texts, historians often feel confident to proclaim that this was precisely the ritual that was happening due to the unusual nature of the event. 
Nobody in the Babylonian court tried to stop the prisoner, and he was said to have been released by someone who well understood the astronomical signs of Babylon. Then the prisoner boldly took the crown and sat on his throne, and Alexander was advised to kill the prisoner afterwards. All signs of a substitute king ritual. Unfortunately, it appeared that this last-ditch attempt to save the king was in vain, as within a month or two, Alexander had fallen ill and died. As a side, if either the April or May eclipse of 323 BCE was predicted as a result of the Saros cycle, it was only the April eclipse that had a Saros predecessor, 18 years earlier on April 1st, 341 BCE, as well as another before that on March 22nd, 359 BCE. But none of the predecessors seem to have been visible from Babylon or the surrounding regions. If the Babylonians were predicting the eclipses in the spring of 323 BCE, they apparently weren't using the Saros method. Regardless, the Saros cycle was at least one of the confirmed ways Mesopotamians could predict eclipses as they were doing it before, during, and after Thales' time, just as the story of the death of Alexander goes to show. Therefore, the question of whether the Saros cycles were possibly used by Thales to predict his eclipse has been asked as they were likely the main method used by astronomers on when to implement the substitute king faint. The entire ritual of the substitute king is primarily associated with the prediction of eclipses, not a reaction, meaning that there was at least some way to predict some eclipses some of the time. But all of the documented cases of the substitute king ritual were from Assyria, not Babylonia but both empires shared a similar culture between them, which is why it would show up in the annals of Alexander the Great when he was located in Babylon. The substitute king ritual was also known to be practiced by the Hittites, a group of pre-Lydian people, as well as the Persians. There is even a famous example of the Persian ruler Xerxes using a substitute king after a terrible dream. It's also worth noting, then, that the substitute king was in some cases used for a reactionary purpose, but not primarily so. King Eliates and King Cyaxares were likely aware of the omens associated with eclipses, and neither had a substitute in place on the day of the eclipse of Thales in 585 BCE, which may have been why they were both so willing to forge an amicable ending. Using the Saros cycle, then, the 585 BCE eclipse does appear to have a predecessor. On May 18th, 603 BCE, 
the previous eclipse in the Saros cycle before the 585 one occurred and would have been visible to Thales as a young man. This is enough to explain Thales' prediction of the 585 eclipse to some, as all he would have had to do is have the knowledge of the Saros cycle and he could have predicted the year. But others are not so convinced. In order for Thales to understand that there would be another eclipse in the Saros cycle 18 years later with certainty, he would have had to have known about the eclipse that occurred 18 years before the 603 eclipse as well. This eclipse occurred on May 7th, 621, but it could only have been seen from the middle of the Pacific Ocean far away from the eyes of any Babylonian astronomer, so it could not have been documented. From Thales' perspective, the 603 eclipse would have been an isolated event, with no predecessor to link it to the Saros cycle. The one preceding the 621 eclipse over the Pacific took place in April 639 on the east coast of North America, and again it would have been missed by ancient Mesopotamians. In fact, the last eclipse in the same Saros cycle as the 585 and 603 eclipses that could have been seen in ancient Mesopotamia and Anatolia would have been April 15th, 657 BCE. Detractors claim that Thales would not stake his meticulous reputation on a hunch that the 657 BCE eclipse, which occurred well before he was born, was related to the 603 eclipse, and therefore use it to predict the 585 eclipse. This is, of course, assuming there were no cloudy days on either of the two previous Saros eclipse events that could be seen in that area before 585. Otto Neugebauer, 20th century mathematician and science historian, whom the National Academy of Sciences hailed as, quote, the most original and productive scholar of the history of the exact sciences, perhaps of the history of science of our age, End quote, makes the strongest case against Thales' possibility of having used the Saros cycle to produce his prediction of the eclipse. He stated in his book, The Exact Sciences in Antiquity, quote, The myth of the Saros is often used as an explanation of the alleged prediction by Thales of the solar eclipse of 585 May 28th. There exists no cycle for solar eclipses visible at a given place. All modern cycles concern the Earth as a whole. No Babylonian theory for predicting a solar eclipse existed at 600 BC, as one can see from the very unsatisfactory situation 400 years later. Nor did the Babylonians ever develop any theory which took the influence of geographical latitude into account. 
One can safely say that the story about Thales predicting a solar eclipse is no more reliable than the other story about Anaxagoras predicting the fall of meteors. Even from a purely historical viewpoint, the whole story appears very doubtful. Our earliest source, Herodotus, reports that Thales had predicted this loss of daylight to the Ionians correctly for the year in which it actually happened. This whole formulation is so exceedingly vague that in itself it excludes the use of any exact method. The farther we move away from the time of Thales, the more generous do the ancient authors become in assigning him mathematical and astronomical discoveries. I see not a single reliable element in any of these stories which have become so dear to the histories of science. Such a cautious outlook is, however, far from common. Needless to say, Thales' studies in Egypt are also taken very seriously. Unfortunately, we know from Diodorus that Thales knew so little about Egypt that he could propose the theory that the inundation of the Nile began at, and here Neugebauer is quoting Thales, the mouths of the river and the Etesian winds hinder the flow of water into the sea. End quote of Thales, and also end quote of Neugebauer. If there ever was a character assassination of Thales, it would be this rebuke by Otto Neugebauer. Neugebauer's views sufficiently changed enough scholarly minds to propose alternatives to the meaning of Herodotus's claim of Thales' prediction. One posits that perhaps Herodotus wrongly interpreted the type of eclipse and that potentially Thales had predicted a lunar eclipse. Another goes as far as to propose that the loss of daylight mentioned by Herodotus was actually a lunar eclipse, citing the night engagement in the previous sentence to speculate that the Lydians and the Medes were fighting under the moon. Yet another posits that Thales could have predicted the solar eclipse by using a record of preceding lunar eclipses. One of the most compelling theories is put forth by Dirk Kupri, which doesn't rely on any ancient knowledge other than the observations that Thales could have made by himself during his own lifetime. Neugebauer rightly picks up on the mythologizing of Thales over time, and warns that there are no good, clear sources for how Thales could have predicted his namesake eclipse. Neugebauer spends several preceding paragraphs admonishing the source that ancient Babylonians understood the Saros cycle to begin with. Neugebauer points out that Edmund Haley's original conjecture, as he called it, of the Saros being the tool of the eclipse predictions in the ancient world was based on faulty assumptions. Neugebauer states that, quote, There exists no cycle for solar eclipses visible at a given place. All modern cycles concern the Earth as a whole, end quote. 
While Neugebauer admits that the Saros cycle is real, it only makes sense when you understand eclipses from the perspective of the entire Earth, as many eclipses, such as the ones over the Pacific in 621 and North America in 639, were not visible from the Middle East like the 585 and 603 eclipses were, despite them all being part of the same Saros cycle. The eight-year Saros cycle looks much more sporadic and random when a single location has no idea of eclipses that occur as part of the Saros cycle on the other side of the planet. But it also seems like Neugebauer was not giving the ancients as much credit as they deserve. Using Thales' 585 eclipse, it is possible to discover aspects of the Saros cycle still hidden within it. For example, it may have been known that eclipses do happen generally over 18-year periods, but that it was not a certainty. The fact that Thales was alive and likely witnessed the predecessor to the 585 eclipse in 603 was perhaps the first reason for Thales to predict another one 18 years later. Thales may also have had historical data of the 657 BCE eclipse, 54 years before the one he witnessed in 603. Seeing the common denominator in 54 and 18 is the number 9, perhaps 9 played a special role in predicting eclipses. Thales might have noticed other astronomical similarities as well, some of which would have been known by astronomers of the ancient world. They'd have recognized that lunar eclipses occurred during full moons and that solar eclipses occurred during new moons. Recording this data in some kind of a calendar shows suggestive but inexact patterns of which Thales may have used to make his prediction. Perhaps it was these clusters of different patterns which made astronomers suggest certain times for substitute kings more than others, even when an eclipse did not ultimately come to pass. This may be why the substitute king ritual was done for Alexander the Great, despite no actual eclipses occurring over Babylon that spring, where instead they occurred elsewhere without their knowledge. Therefore, the mystery may not be how Thales predicted the eclipse, but instead why his prediction became so popular at the time to live on for millennia. Herodotus notes that Thales made his prediction to the Ionians. Some academics have postulated that this may have been done during one of the Ionian festivals and therefore giving his prediction more weight, even if the prediction was not made using the exact sciences known today. It's possible that the prediction of the 585 eclipse made at an Ionian festival by a well-respected Milesian philosopher was noteworthy and exciting for attenders to begin with. Thales was likely well-regarded already before the eclipse due to his knowledge in mathematics, and we know that even today the news of upcoming eclipses still garners excitement despite the mystery of it now being gone.
that a well-regarded philosopher was predicting a high chance of an eclipse to occur in 585 during an Ionian festival would have made the event noteworthy and talked about throughout Ionia as the news spread across the cities of the attendees. This alone may have already given him some notoriety, but when not only did his prediction come true, but that the eclipse that he predicted ended the six-year-long engagement between the Lydians and the Medes, that may have boosted him to celebrity status. It's likely that this war was on the forefront of everybody's mind in an age of crumbling empires. That Thales predicted the eclipse to end a war would have been talked about in every city in Ionia, Lydia, and likely as far away as Media. This is the sort of news that would have caught the attention of Xenophanes and later on Herodotus, who both lived outside of Miletus. This would have propelled Thales to being the wisest man in all of Ionia, the first sage of Greece. The final insult Neugebauer lays upon Thales was mocking his belief that winds cause the annual flooding of the Nile. Quote, Thales knew so little about Egypt that he could propose the theory that the inundation of the Nile began at the mouths of the river and the Etesian winds hinder the flow of the water into the sea. End quote. Neugebauer knows, as well as anyone else today, that the annual flooding of the Nile is the result of melting snow and summer rain in the Ethiopian mountains at the Nile's source. In fact, there are a whole host of wrong beliefs that Thales held specifically because there was still so much yet to learn about the Earth and the universe. Thales also believed that the flat earth lay on top of the ocean and that earthquakes occurred because of disturbances of the water in the ocean. Thales believed that there must be one obvious source that united everything in the universe together, called the unifying principle of diversity. Thales explored the possibility of water being this single unifying force. And with the tools and knowledge available to him at the time, it wasn't a bad theory, as water clearly seemed to be so fundamental to life. But today, we know that all things do not contain water. But despite his legend as a myth, no one ever truly claimed that he was more than a man, limited by the knowledge of his time. That Neugebauer makes such a non-sequitur low blow on Thales should give us pause on his full-throated conclusion that Thales' prediction is baseless. Neugebauer seemed to have an axe to grind against the histories of science, which have found Thales' prediction to be, as he said, so dear. One University of Massachusetts physics class website reminds us to keep in context the times in which Thales lived. Quote, The takeaway point about these ideas is not their level of correctness or incorrectness, but their relative correctness. 
they were revolutionary ideas in that they did not involve fantastical mythological explanations. They were also revolutionary in that they were not to be taken as truth. These early scientists admitted incomplete knowledge of the workings of nature, and it was assumed that each new hypothesis was a topic of debate amongst the scientific community. The Milesians, therefore, were an important example of an early culture of rational scientific debate. End quote. Neugebauer was right to caution total acceptance of Thales' prediction, but he may have overreached as well. There are too many variables to discount Thales' prediction as a complete fabrication of his legendary image. The separate claims of the Thales prediction in Herodotus and Laertius proves that there are at least two different sources confirming the same event. And how does Neugebauer explain the ritual of the substitute kings with upcoming eclipses before, during, and after Thales' time for hundreds of years before Hipparchus' method for determining eclipses was found? How much is Neugebauer taking into account the massive diaspora going on around the ancient world at the time of Thales? Is he truly considering how much information must have been lost with the destruction of the Assyrian Empire, Median Empire, Lydian Empire, Babylonian Empire, and ultimately the Persian Empire? all of which would have had centuries-old centers of learning destroyed in each of their downfalls. Neugebauer is an expert on interpreting and understanding the information that has survived both the destruction of the time as well as the following 2,000-plus years since. But Neugebauer is a man of the exact sciences, and it's no surprise that if he doesn't find evidence on how Thales could have predicted the 585 eclipse exactly, that he'd be likely to overlook the possibility of a softer sort of figuring which may have undergirded much of the ancient scientific world. Neugebauer also mentions Thales' Egyptian education that is highly lauded but not well understood. Remember, Thales allegedly directed Pythagoras to Egypt for his learning, just as Thales had traveled there as a young man himself. Egypt also suffered greatly, losing the important city of Heliopolis, among others, in the disruptive wars of the time. Even Alexandria, a city built much later than Heliopolis and took over the role of Egypt's center of learning, had its own library with documents from all over the ancient world, repeatedly plundered, culled, and even burned by Julius Caesar, which is where we lost Pythias' book. Neugebauer even admits in his own book that, quote, the transmission of Babylonian and Egyptian knowledge to Hellenistic culture in the wake of Alexander the Great's conquests produced the dominant scientific worldview before the age of Newton, end quote. It may just be that this transmission began several hundred years earlier than Neugebauer thought with philosophers like Thales. 
The details of how Thales was able to predict the solar eclipse of 585 is likely lost forever, if he really did predict it at all. But what is known is that kings of the two most powerful empires of their day, two people who held unimaginable power in their hands, bowed down and cowered to an astronomical phenomenon. While Thales took the time to understand it as so natural an event that he could predict it. And today, those kings are small and forgotten men, while Thales continues to loom large as a foundational component of modern education through his mathematical discoveries. Just as the fall of Media and Lydia were taking place, Thales was building the foundation of a new, Western civilization in their ashes. Thales, the man who stood so firmly against mythological explanations for natural phenomena, ultimately became a myth himself. And it is on the shoulders of this titan that we still rest upon to this day, so far above him now that when we look down, we almost forget he's there. After his death, a statue was allegedly erected in his honor with the following inscription, quote, Pride of Miletus and Ionian lands, wisest astronomer, here Thales stands, end quote. The inscription on his tomb was said to have been as follows, quote, Here in a narrow tomb great Thales lies, yet his renown for wisdom reached the skies." End quote. Thank you for listening to this episode of No Character Limit. Every episode, the sources that I used are located in the description if you would like to check them out. In addition, please consider liking, rating, and reviewing if you enjoyed this podcast as each one goes to help further the reach of this podcast for new people to hear. Each episode requires hours in research, writing, recording, and editing. So if you feel that what you just heard is worth a donation of any size, please go to the description and follow the links for that. Each donation comes with a free PDF copy of a writing piece of your choice, no matter the size of your donation, and you get a lot of extra features with that, including a lot of the artwork and graphs and pictures, as well as the descriptions that I don't include in the podcast. 
if you would like updates for new episodes, you can follow No Character Limit at mastodon.world. And finally, if you have a question, comment, or even a correction, please feel free to reach out at nocharacterlimit at protonmail.com. Thank you again for listening.